0: Morning, Providence. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning because you're worthy of worship. You are a God who has created us. You are the God who has redeemed us. You're the God who has moved us to surrender our lives to you through Jesus Christ. As we open our Bibles this morning, we pray that we would have a deeper sense of our being owned by you and that having that deeper sense of your ownership of us, that we would be moved to worship you with our lives, to obey you, to celebrate you, that we would live for you in all things, looking forward to the day that we spend eternity in your presence. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus 27. Leviticus 27. One of my kids asked me this morning if we were going to still be in Leviticus 26 this morning. I said, No, 27. This is the last sermon in Leviticus. And she said, Oh, no. I'm so sad. So if you're similarly lamenting the end of this series, take heart. The Bible is big. We'll move on to another book and everything will be okay. But before we move on to another book, let's see what we can squeeze out of this final chapter of Leviticus. Stand with me if you would please. And we'll read the whole chapter. Leviticus 27, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male, 20 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the valuation shall be for a male, five shekels of silver, and for a female, the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it either as good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to its valuation. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, The priest shall value it as either good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand, but if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price, and it shall remain his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed Anymore. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not a part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of Jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought to whom the land belongs as a possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 gerahs make a shekel. But a firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. If it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Everything devoted is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds or flocks, every tenth of animal, of all that passes under the herdman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad. Neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. You may be seated. Leviticus assumes the central truth of human existence, which is that man was created to enjoy fellowship with God. And it answers the central question of human history, which is, how can I, a sinner, enter God's presence to enjoy fellowship with Him? And to that end, the book describes sacrifices of approach, which open the way to fellowship with God, and sacrifices of abiding, which depict life with God. The book also shows the installation of a priesthood by which these sacrifices are offered. It also shows the catastrophe that takes place when man tries to approach God by other means. It prescribes laws for ritual purity and moral holiness. Moral holiness and ritual purity commensurate with life with a holy God. The book gives instruction for the Day of Atonement, which provides a mechanism for cleansing both the tent of meeting and the people from the defilement of their sin. It reveals that all of God's redemptive work is Sabbath rest, which means fellowship with Him in His presence. It outlines blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And at every turn, we have found that the whole of it is intended to point to greater realities in the new covenant in Christ's blood. Jesus is a better high priest offering a single sacrifice to atone in a heavenly tabernacle to perfectly cleanse the church unto her progressive sanctification in this life and Sabbath rest in the next, ensuring the removal of the curse and the enjoyment of all heavenly blessings. So why... Chapter 27. Many people have noted that, that chapter 27 reads like an anticlimactic afterthought at worst or an appendix at best. I would suggest to you that the Holy Spirit has a very good reason for ending Leviticus with chapter 27. Fallen human beings have an aversion to Commitment. If you think about the, com- the companies that all of us do business with, th- they determine their pricing based upon how lenient their return policy is. I mean, they ask themselves the question: How do? How much do we need to charge in order to make up for the loss that's going to be incurred by buyers' remorse when people return all of these things? We we don't even switch cell phone carriers without asking ourselves how easy is it going to be for me to get out of this relationship? And that propensity to, to get buyer's remorse over a uh, over a commitment, this is why ancient Near Eastern covenants had the kind of blessings and curses pronounced at the end of a covenant that we found in, in chapter 26. If, if you did not have those blessings and curses pronounced, blessings for keeping the covenant, curses for breaking the covenant. If you didn't have that, no one would keep an agreement. Chapter 27, then, is, is a perfect complement to chapter 26. It's a perfect complement to the whole book in that it teaches look, what is consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. Whether it's a person, a vow, a firstborn, a devoted thing, a tithe. What is consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. That is, it is holy to the Lord. That's a perfect way to end the Leviticus. A book that is written to instruct a people consecrated to God. And it's a perfect reminder to New Testament believers who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. You yourself are owned by God and therefore bound to live as if you are owned by God. Now this passage delineates various items that are consecrated to God, that are, that are holy to Him. So so we want to walk through this passage, first of all, this morning, and look at these things that are consecrated to the Lord and see how this passage shows us that what's consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. And we saw as we read that, first of all, there are vows. So, So let me, first of all, give you the skinny on vows. There could be two kinds of vows. There are conditional vows and unconditional vows. And in a conditional vow, a person might say to the Lord, Yahweh, if you do this, then I'll give you this. There are numerous examples of this kind of thing happening in the Bible. First of all, let me give you just a few examples. In 1 Samuel 1, Hannah does this very thing. She prays to the Lord, Lord, if you'll let me have a son, then I'll dedicate that son to your service, that son being Samuel. That's 1 Samuel 1. Another example comes in Numbers 21. In Numbers 21 and verse 2, the entire nation vows a conditional vow to the Lord, saying, If you'll give the Canaanites into our hands, we'll devote their cities to destruction. So if you do this, Lord, then we'll do this. Another example, Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11. Jephthah, the moron, vows this vow. He says, Lord, if you'll give the Ammonites into my hand, I'll kill the first thing that comes out the door of my house to greet me. And what was the first thing that came out of his house to greet him? It was his daughter, his daughter. If you do this, Lord, I'll give you this. That's a conditional vow. If then, a conditional vow, an unconditional vow is, is something that we are just like as an expression of thanksgiving or praise, a person just vows to give something, to, to the Lord. So that there's no if. There's just, I'm going to give you this. We read about this kind of thing, particularly in the Psalms, like Psalm 54, Psalm 116, which was read for us this morning. So Lord, just because, just because you are, I'm going to, to, to promise to give you this thing. And the things that were vowed in conditional and unconditional vows could be, could be one's own person. Could be somebody else that they're vowing, as in the case with, with Samuel. Could be your house. Could be your land. Could be your money, your animals. And when you make that vow to the Lord, that person, that money, that land, whatever it is, it then comes into the service of the tabernacle. So the priests, they take it. It becomes there for their, theirs for their use in, in serving the Lord. Now, here's three additional things that we want to, to make sure that we understand about vows before we move on. First of all, Vows are nowhere commanded in the Scripture. So you don't have to make vows. If if you don't make a vow, you're not in any trouble at all. So, So they are completely voluntary. That's the first thing. The second thing, though, is that if you make one, you've got to keep it. If you make a vow, it's completely binding. And both of those first two principles we derive from Deuteronomy 23 Verses 21 through 23. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23. So if you never make a vow, you haven't done anything wrong. But if you make a vow, the Lord is going to require require it of you. And both of those principles we also also find mentioned in Ecclesiastes 5.5, which says, it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So again, you don't have to vow, but if you do, you have to pay. A third thing to, to understand about vows, and, and, and we, we derive this from the, the passage that we're studying this morning, is that you could redeem or exchange for money the original thing that you vowed. So if you decide, oh, I don't want to give that that original thing, you could give money instead. And there could be many reasons that you might decide to do that. We'll We'll look at some of those reasons as we move along. So So some of the categories of things that could be vowed, first of all, in verses 1 through 8, we find that you could vow a person. You could vow yourself, you could vow somebody else. So I could vow me, I could vow maybe my son or a servant. The idea again is that that I'm vowing this person for the service of the Lord. Now a reason that I might want to redeem that vow or exchange that person for money is that, well... Only Levites could actually serve in the, the tabernacle. So that might be one reason that I might decide, well, maybe it makes more sense for me to give money instead. Another reason that I might want to redeem that vow is, let's say I made a Nazarite vow. If you want to read about Nazarite vows, you can read about them in Numbers chapter 6. I don't have time to explain Nazarite vows this morning, but Numbers 6. You might decide if you'd made a Nazarite vow, maybe this isn't the lifestyle for me. Maybe I'd rather give money instead. Well, verses 1 through 8 explain that you can actually do that. You can actually do that. And verses 1 through 8 tell you how much money to give. Somebody mentioned to me this morning, look, I don't envy you this morning on Mother's Day having to explain why men are more valuable than women. And it's actually not as bad as it looks. I mean, we we read this passage and we think, wow, this, this looks bad. It may give us a little bit of heartburn. It looks like men are inherently more valuable than women. That's actually not at all what's going on here. What's going on is that the Bible is suggesting that different people have a larger capacity to work than others. And it actually makes perfect sense. According to age or gender, different people are going to have a larger capacity to work. A 20-year-old male is able to do more work than a 61-year-old female. Anybody going to argue that? Maybe somebody outside these walls. But people with common sense who, ex- who understand that there's, there's a difference between a 20-year-old and a 61-year-old and a male and a female, Th- this is common sense. A 21-year-old male can do more work than a 61-year-old female. 61-year-old female can do more work than a 5-year-old male or a one-month-old male. That's the, that's the reason for these different valuations. What we really want to, to pay attention to here is that what's being communicated is that You're not buying your way out of the vow. You're just exchanging it for money. And when you exchange it for money, it's costly. It's costly to do this because listen to this. We don't use shekels, right? But a shekel in the day here was a month's wages. One month's wages, one shekel. is a month's wages. So to redeem a 20 to 60-year-old male cost more than four years' wages. It's a lot of money. To redeem a female of the same age range, that's two and a half years' wages. The point is, you're not walking away from this vow. It, it It is very costly. It's costly if you're going to devote that person to the Lord. It's costly if you're going to exchange that vow for money. Either way... What's being communicated is when you make a vow to the Lord, it belongs to the Lord. And what if if you had vowed an animal to the Lord? That's verses 9 through 13. Two things to know about this situation. If you vow an animal to the Lord, there's no exchanging that animal for another animal. If you try that, both animals belong to the Lord. The original one and the other one. They're both holy to the Lord. Now, if the animal that that you vowed to the Lord is unclean, then that animal could be redeemed, but you're going to have to redeem that that animal or exchange that animal for a 20% up fee, okay? In other words, it's costly to exchange a vow for money. You're not walking away. The vow is being kept. It's costly. What belongs to the Lord belongs to the Lord. Verses 14-25 through deal with houses and land. You might devote your house to the Lord, to the Lord's service, or your land. Very similar here. You could exchange that vow for money, but you've got to pay that 20% premium. And with the land, if a person doesn't redeem that land before the year of Jubilee, it becomes devoted to the Lord. That is, it's perpetually under the control of of the priest. And so with all of these vows, verses 1 through 25... It's it's underscored that even with the possibility of redeeming that thing vowed for money. It's underscored the seriousness of the vow. Redeeming the thing vowed does not mean that that person is buying their way out from under it and just walking away. The point is, it is costly to make a vow to the Lord. It's very costly. What's consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. Moving on in the passage, we look at verses 26 and 27 and we find the situation of firstborns. The firstborn of animals can't be dedicated to the Lord. Why? Because they already belong to Him. And we find that in Exodus 13 too, where where we're told, Consecrate to me, this is the Lord saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the wound among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. So the Lord is saying, Look, don't dedicate to me the firstborn of an animal. It's already mine. It's not yours to give. And verse twenty-seven says that if, if that if that animal, that firstborn animal, is unclean and therefore unfit to be sacrificed to Yahweh, then you have to you have to redeem it for a twenty percent premium. What's consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. Verses twenty-nine, I'm sorry, twenty-eight and twenty-nine pertains to devoted things, and we may. You may not have a background on devoted things, but if, if you've read further in the, in the Old Testament, you, you may know that devoted things pertain to the ban incurred on the land when, when God brings the people into the promised land. We read about this in Joshua and Judges. Devoted things are those things but that belong to the Canaanites as the people are coming into the land, and they're supposed to be given to the Lord. So when when the Israelites come into, into the Canaan land, all the livestock, all the land, all the money, and the people, the Canaanites, they are supposed to be devoted to the Lord, which means everything is given to the Lord. And in the case of the people, that means devoted to destruction. They're all going to be killed. In Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 13, that same term is used for the death penalty even among Israelites. So an Israelite who does something that's punishable by death, they are said to be devoted to the Lord or devoted to destruction. So devoted things, they can't be redeemed at all. That is, you can't exchange them for money. They belong to the Lord. What's consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. Tithes come up. The very end here, verses thirty through thirty-three. A tithe literally means a tenth part. So every tenth part of a seed or fruit of the land or of the cattle or or flock, all of it, every tenth part belongs to the Lord. Now they can be redeemed. That is a person, a person can give money instead, but once again, to do that, they have to pay that 20%. Premium, once again indicating it is costly to give something to the Lord. And the big point overarching the whole passage is that one cannot just walk away from a commitment to Yahweh. That things can be exchanged or or redeemed for money does not lessen the seriousness of that commitment, but rather it emphasizes it in that to exchange or to redeem is so costly. What belongs to the Lord belongs to the Lord. Now, what, what what's the significance for us as New Testament believers? The significance for us is that the believer gives everything to the Lord. The believer gives everything to the Lord. Consider this. The believer is owned several times over according to the Scriptures. And in fact, I'm going to give you three different ways in which we are owned by the Lord. First of all, All people are owned by virtue of the fact that God created them. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2 reads this way. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So the psalmist is is teaching there, God owns everything because God made everything, including all people. So whether we want to acknowledge it or not, whether everyone outside of this building wants to acknowledge it or not, all people are owned by God because He made them. Second way in which we are owned, as believers, we are owned by virtue of the redemption price of Christ's blood. When Adam fell in Genesis chapter three, all mankind became enslaved to sin and death. And so we, we are, by nature, at our conception, we are rebellious, children of wrath. We're enslaved to sinful impulses that, that that carry us to perdition. And if we would be free then we must be redeemed. And the scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he is that redeemer. How did he redeem us? Not with money, not with the dedication of a bull or a goat, but rather, he redeemed us by the shedding of His own blood on the cross. Through His own blood, Jesus paid the price for our sin so that we might be forgiven by God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we find the apostle describing this act of Jesus Christ as a ransom or a redemption in the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Apostle Paul uses that same kind of language of redemption when he writes in 1 Corinthians 7.23. He says that you were bought with a price. You were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. So the the believer is not owned only because God created him, but the believer is owned because he has been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. A third sense in which the believer is owned is that the believer is owned in the sense that he also surrenders to Christ by following Christ in repentance and faith. Jesus characterized following Him as an act of self-denial or dying to self. Jesus said in, in Luke 9.23, If anyone would follow Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. It's that picture of, of, of taking up one's cross, dying to self all the time following Jesus. So the believer is owned by virtue of creation, by virtue of redemption in Christ's blood, and by virtue of voluntarily following Jesus. And the the New Testament teaches that this ownership is an all-encompassing reality. That is, by being owned, everything that I am, everything that I have, comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Think about what that means. Think about what... Everything that I am and have includes. It includes, first of all, my body. And this, this is taught explicitly in, in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6:12 says, "You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body." We've returned numerous times to Romans chapter 12, verse one, which reads, "I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies." As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, we hear so frequently in our culture, my body, my what? My body, my choice. Nope. Nope. I'm a steward of the body that God has entrusted to me. It's His. What's consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. Also my mind, not just my body, but my mind. Listen to this. F- following there in Romans chapter 2, Paul says in, I'm sorry, chapter 12, in verse 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In, in other words, the Scriptures tell me what to do with my mind. Philippians 4.8 says this, Finally, brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Colossians 3.2 Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. That God tells me what to do with my mind assumes that it belongs to Him. What's consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord but not just my body, not just my mind, but also my relationships. Jesus claims ownership over my relationships if I follow Him. Matthew 10.35 says this, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Romans chapter 7, the Scriptures tell me who I can marry and when. Ephesians 5, 22 and following. Give timeless principles for how husbands and wives should love and serve one another. Principles that, that, that don't merely go against modern culture, but counter to fallen human nature. And yet they are there, given as directions to us. Ephesians 6, 4 directs me to raise my children, not as, not as I see fit, but, but in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, now what is gives God the right to direct me in my relationships. He owns them because He owns me. And what is consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. Not just my body, not just my mind, not just my relationships, my finances and my possessions. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and following instructs the believer to be content with the meagerest of things. Be content as long as you have food and clothing. And don't love money. Do not love money. Likewise, John, 1 John 2, 15 and following commands the believer, don't love the things of the world. Don't love the world. Contrary to the spirit of the age, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19-21, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust Destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, the Lord tells me what my disposition should be about possessions, about money. He says, don't be preoccupied with material things. But in Matthew 6.33, He says, Seek first, seek above all things, His righteousness and His kingdom, and then all these things will be added to you. Make my priorities your priorities, and, and I'll deal with your needs. The Scriptures teach that one should prioritize cheerful, proportional, regular giving to the ministry of the church. That's in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. How can God tell me what I should do with my material things? Because ultimately they are His things because He owns me. And what's consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. In addition to my body, my mind, my relationships, my finances, and my possessions, there is also my conduct and my very life. 1 Peter 1, 15-19 reads this way, But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways Inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now that passage there in 1 Peter 1, that is the import of of every practical section of the New Testament. The New Testament is filled with ethical commands to the believer, giving direction on every area of moral life Clearly founded on the reality that we ourselves belong to Him. And what is consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. The believer, by following Christ in faith, surrenders everything to Him. And so, then, how should we live? quite obviously, the believer should live as one owned by him. The believer should live as one owned by him. Now, what exactly would that look like? Now, we could punt here and say, well, just obey all the commands of the New Testament. I'd like to put a little bit more skin on that for you this morning. If, if my body, my mind, my relationships, my material things, my conduct in life... If everything in my life is owned by Christ, a, a great way of, of putting some flesh on that and saying, what would that look like? An easy way to picture this would, would be to say, it would look like the Apostle Paul's life post-conversion. That's what it would look like. Paul lived as one owned. Now, I don't have time to be exhaustive here, but, but, I, but I do want to give you some examples based upon Paul as a model of of what it would look like to live as one owned. If I'm convinced that I am owned and I want to live in light of that reality, here are some examples of what that will look like based upon the example of Paul. First of all, I will sacrifice personal freedoms in the interest of Christ proclaimed. I will sacrifice personal freedoms in the interest of Christ proclaimed Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians from a prison cell so we could just stop right there and say case made but but let me let me tell you one of the things that he wrote okay he gave this update from his prison cell this is chapter 1 verses 12 through 14 he said i want you to know brothers that what has happened to me, and what he means is my imprisonment, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul loved that. He was eager to sacrifice personal freedoms in the interest of Christ proclaimed. You can can hear that there. That's the first thing. A second thing, I won't care who gets the credit as long as Christ is proclaimed. I won't care who gets the credit as long as Christ is proclaimed. In that same passage in Philippians 1, Paul continues Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So, so Paul, Paul doesn't care who gets the credit as long as Christ is proclaimed. I would suggest to you that that is because Paul has a sense of being owned by Christ. A third thing. My own life and death will be weighed purely in terms of Christ and His kingdom. My own life and death will be weighed purely in terms of Christ and His kingdom. Philippians 1, verses 20-26, through very famous passage. Paul writes, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you hear that? Christ is going to be honored in me one way or the other, whether I live or die. I'm confident about that. For, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Did you hear all of that? His life and his death, they are weighed strictly in terms of Christ and his kingdom. If I die, I'm losing out on this. He doesn't think that way. If I die, I get to see Jesus. If I live, I get to have all of these wonderful worldly experiences. No, his first thing is, if I live, it means more fruit for the kingdom. His life and his death weighed completely in terms of Christ and his kingdom. Why? Because Paul is owned. He's owned in everything that he is and has. They are owned by Christ. Fourth, if I'm owned and I'm going to live like that, I'll enjoy, I'm sorry, I'll find joy in the sanctification of the church for the glory of the Father. I'll find joy in the sanctification of the church for the glory of the Father. Don't have time to read the passage, but it's a very familiar one in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul exhorts the Philippians to complete his joy. Make my joy complete by emulating the love and humility of Christ. Unto the glorification of the Father. Think about that. Paul doesn't say anything like, complete my joy by making much of me, by making my load lighter, by doing this for me. No, complete my joy by emulating Christ, by being like Him, by loving like Him, by being as humble as Him, unto the glorification of the Father. Why? Because he's owned. Everything he is and has, owned by Christ. Fifth, if I'm owned by Christ and I'm determined to live that way, I'll share what is mine for the consolation of others. I'll share what is mine for the consolation of others. Chapter 2, Paul, again, he's suffering in prison. All he has in terms of creature comforts are two buddies. Timothy and Epaphroditus. What does he do with those, with those two means of comfort? He sends them to the Philippians for their edification. He sends them to them. He's, 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 he, writes, he, he writes saying also in chapter 4, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul, Paul was willing to share everything that was his for the consolation of others because he was owned. He and everything that belonged to him owned by Christ. Sixth, if I'm owned and I'm determined to live in light of that ownership, I'll gladly sacrifice all of these things in light of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. I'll gladly sacrifice all of these things in light of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Philippians 3.7 But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul, willing to sacrifice anything in light of the surpassing value of having Christ. Why? Because he he had this deep sense that he, everything he had, was owned by Christ. And he gloried in it. Now, this next question that I'm going to ask this is perhaps the most crucial question of the morning. Is Paul an exceptional Uber Christian? Does Paul represent himself as like the the, the optional postgraduate degree in being owned by God? He does not. Philippians 3:17. He writes, "Brothers." Join in imitating me and keep eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So there are others like Paul. And Paul says, be be like all of us. Imitate me. And and this this idea finds its way into Paul's other letters. 1 Corinthians 4.16 I urge you, then, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul's saying there, look, I'm not doing anything other than just following Jesus, and I'm giving you an example to follow as well. So, f- imitate me as, as I imitate Christ. 2 Peter 1.13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul does not set himself up as this unattainable example of what you really can't be, but he lives this life as an example right in front of the body of Christ and says, Now, do exactly this in the power of Christ. Christ and his kingdom at the center of one's life, identity, and purpose, this is what is intended when Christ redeems a people for Himself. What is consecrated to the Lord belongs to the Lord. Now, this may have, may have different, very specific applications in each one of our lives. It may be that the Holy Spirit is, is, is speaking to each of us in very different ways, bringing to our minds specific things. That we have been holding back from Him as if, yes, Lord, all of this is yours, all of this, but this little thing is mine. And He would say to us, all of it is mine. All of it is mine to my glory and to your joy. So after I pray and we have a few moments of of silent consideration of these things, May the Holy Spirit bring those things to our mind and may He move us to recognize with joy that what belongs to the Lord belongs to the Lord. How would He have you respond this morning? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the book of Leviticus. We thank You for what You have taught us over these recent weeks and months. We pray that as we are leaving Leviticus that it would not leave us. And we pray that you would move us to return to it devotionally in the coming months and years. And as we do so that your Holy Spirit would remind us of all that we've learned. That we would continue to apply its truths in in Christ. And we pray that now in the coming moments that your Holy Spirit would minister to us. By convicting us and encouraging us that every part of our, our being, everything that we own and have that it belongs to you, please give us joy in this. Please grant us hearts that, that want to, to revel in this truth, surrendering once again to that reality. And Father, please help us, as Paul did, to live in light of these things, singing in our hearts that what is consecrated to you belongs to you. Please, in these coming moments, Lord, please reveal to us, each in our own unique circumstances, exactly what this needs to look like in the coming days. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.